podcast, where we share our love for the holidays with you year-round. This is Beth, and I'm going to be talking about donating school supplies. This is Cole, and I'm going to be talking about the deadliest autumn in American history. (laughs) That sounds lovely. And this is Randy, and I will be talking about Renaissance fairs. As always, we begin our podcast with our holiday happenings for the week. Does anyone have a holiday happening to share? Well, at the gas station the other day, I saw that they are bringing out their Halloween candy. Yep. The Reese's Cups were um, pumpkin-shaped. Yeah, for fall and Halloween. And what else? Uh, then let's see, um, what else? The Kit Kat bars had little bats on them. It's fun. <laughs> it's fun. Now, are these loose ones or are these like bags of candy? Like these you know, are, the other ones are like right in front where you. Yeah, you yeah. there's just, bars of candy, yeah. But they're not like bags of no, them no. that you would buy in the. So, another holiday happening for the week was we went up to Pennsylvania to visit with Beth's mom and um, niece, Brookie, for Friday night and Saturday. And that was nice because the weather was a little cooler up there, especially in the evening. It was a lot cooler. We also um, had an opportunity to go to Dairy Queen. Brooke remembered that it was Blizzard Day, which is the day that... Dairy Queen donates the profits from any blizzard that you buy to the Children's Miracle Network. So we all decided finally that we were going to go. We looked at blizzards that we were going to get. And when we got there, there was a big sign for it. And as I looked through the sign, we realized that it was the day before. (laughs) We were (laughs) off by one day. So we no longer felt obligated to necessarily buy blizzards. I think it was the Miracle Children's Miracle Network. Day. Yeah, I think they called it Miracle Day at Dairy Queen, something like that. I think that's what Brookie called it. Um, And then the final holiday happening that I know of is that Beth and I are in the middle of planning two Disney trips for this year. One in middle of August. Uh, We got annual pass holder previews to the Star Wars Galaxy Edge land in Hollywood Studios in Walt Disney World, Florida. I can't even believe that you did it. I can't either. Very fun. <laughs> That's uh, so crazy. So we decided to make a week of it. And then we're also planning our trip in October. Our family uh, trip. Our family trip in October. So both of those things were very fun this week to begin the uh, process of getting a place to stay and all that sort of thing. So very fun. So with that, we will turn it over to Beth and she will begin the topics for the week. Okay. I love getting back to school supplies. We know. Yes. <laughs> now, There's, yes, there were piles and piles of those in the basement for many years. Right. Well, my kids are now 23 and 25, and I still love getting boxes of crayons and markers and little scissors and all notebooks. kinds of things. Notebooks, lots of notebooks, composition books. Did you, you say know, glue? Binders, glue. I love it. <laughs> I love getting all of it. And it's so cheap when, right before school starts. So, I was thinking, how do you go about finding a place to donate them? If there are others out there who just love to buy school supplies and would like to share that with somebody who needs school supplies, how would we go about doing that? I found at southernsavers.com, they listed five places to do it. And they're pretty good places, so I thought they're a good place to start. One is National Grocery Stores. They specifically talk about Publix, 
in their article, but I have seen at different grocery stores in the fall, there are boxes out so that you can donate items, but they also take monetary gifts so that it can be purchased by them for whatever's needed. Next is the Salvation Army. So the Salvation Army is a great place to donate school supplies. Each branch of the Salvation Army coordinates programs for collecting school supplies. They ask that you contact your local Salvation Army for instructions and information on donating school supplies in your area. Public libraries and schools are another place that you can donate. And you can donate directly to the schools and they'll get the products into the hands of those who need them. Awesome. You're cutting out the middleman there. Right. Straight to, yeah. Yeah, going right to the schools. And they probably have an idea of what things are most likely to not be brought in. Right. So that would be a good place to do it. Public libraries are another place. A lot of them will offer specific places for donating. But if you don't see something, ask someone at the front desk for help. Even if they're not able to accept donations, they will most likely be able to help locate a drop-off location. The other place that was suggested is local churches. Many churches organize back-to-school supply drives as the summer ends and the school year approaches. If you're part of a church that doesn't have a back-to-school drive, consider talking to your pastor or other church leaders about starting one through your church or look around at local churches and see which ones are doing it and you can donate in that way. The last was start your own school supply drive. If you have some time on your hands, consider organizing your own school supply drive. Some of the main steps include asking for help from friends, picking a school, figuring out what's needed, drafting a simple plan, promoting your drive, and dropping off your supplies after your event has ended. So those are some different ways to do it. And as I read through these, I was looking locally to see what we had around us that would match any of these. One of the first things I found was an elementary school locally. They were accepting school supplies from a local church who was actually doing it. So it was a combination of two there. The church found out what supplies they were requesting and they were going to have a drive, get as many as possible, give them right to the elementary school. So that was interesting. Another place I found right away was the church that we're attending called Abundant Life. They are participating in something called Stuff the Bus. And they are asking people to bring in items so that they can hand them off to the Salvation Army. They're partnering with the Salvation Army. Now they're doing that in the mall. They are. So this particular church, they have asked people to sign up between 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. on a Saturday, this coming Saturday, and to take turns helping that drive, making that a mission outreach event. So that was a great, easy way for people to donate there. I will say... Some of the stuff wasn't easy to find. I would have liked to see a school drive, you know, donate school supplies with a list of everywhere in the local area that you could do that. Mm -hmm. Here's this. Here's a bank. Here's a store. Here's this elementary school. Here's a library. Here are the churches involved. 
I would have liked to see something just boom right like that so that it was easy to see people could find something close and it would be easy for people to donate not so much now when you say donate just to clarify is this is going and buying brand new school supplies correct for these kids this is not donating your old crayons right and half used glue yeah so it's either money for new things or brand new things right yeah okay that's a really good point because i didn't even think about that yes they need to be new school supplies the third place is the salvation army i found (laughs) i actually found one that's not local that was in mississippi but they were teaming up with Walmart. So the Stuff the Bus to help families in need seems to be something that the Salvation Army is known for and something that they partner with other community outreach. What would you call that? Other community programs. Yeah, other community outreach programs. So it's like a campaign. Maybe they're doing it nationwide as a right. campaign. Right, which is really nice. It's nice to hear about. I didn't really know that. Another place that I found was a bank. And it said, what and where to donate? And it talks about donating backpacks. And they, again, they have to be new. One of the things that the youth pastor mentioned today at church was earbuds. He said, you know, the kids need backpacks, earbuds, you know, and all the other regular things. But I hadn't thought about earbuds. A lot of kids probably would need those. Just something I hadn't thought about. And the other thing is called facets, opening doors for people in need. And I really don't know a lot about that back to school drive, but it has a picture of a cute little guy on the front with a backpack and he's happy to have it. (laughs) (laughs) The last place I'm going to talk about which is a very unusual way to get school supplies for kids, is another local area in Woodstock, Virginia. And they are giving people the opportunity to turn citations into school supplies. Like a a traffic citation? Like a parking ticket or... (laughs) That's hilarious. Yeah, it says, Woodstock Police on Monday started a campaign to help students of Shenandoah County Public Schools by allowing people the option to pay off their parking tickets with new school supplies. Captain Chris Baker said anyone who receives a parking ticket in Woodstock will be able to bring the ticket to the Woodstock Police Department and pay for it with school supplies in lieu of cash. And then it says where the department is. And it said, um, and this particular article says, this time of year, kids are getting ready to go back to school. Sometimes families need help getting their children the supplies they need. So I'm, I'm guessing they have something in place where you can't just bring like an eraser. <laughs> <laughs> this should cover it. Right. Here's a pink eraser, you know? I got three of them, so this is hers and this is his. No. But this captain also said it's a way it's also a way to turn a negative situation of receiving a citation into a positive situation that helps a child baker pointed out that a person does not have to have a citation to participate anyone can purchase school supplies and drop them off at the police department the campaign will continue through july and then it has a picture of a police officer writing a ticket that's funny that you don't have to get a ticket to uh, to that's participate. Right. You are welcome to just come participate. That's really nice of them, though. T- it is. To do it's very community-minded, isn't mm-hmm. it? I was really impressed by it. I thought it was really a fun thing to find. 
for back to school. Now, as I was doing this, I found all those things and I thought, what kind of supplies are needed? So I just kind of printed out something and I'm not going to go through it exhaustively, but some of the things that stood out to me were things like heavyweight paper. So one package of manila drawing paper, heavyweight, 50 sheets, 12 by 18, and there was also a pair of scissors, Fiskars for kids, which is a brand name. Colored construction paper, heavyweight, 50 sheets, 12 by 18. Composition books, four per student. Now I'm jumping around between elementary and middle and high school. There are a lot of different things here. Some of them you can buy pretty inexpensively at Walmart. Walmart probably has a lot of these things. I don't know where heavyweight construction paper is. I don't know if that's at Walmart or if it's somewhere else. Heavyweight construction paper, heavyweight this, that. There are a lot of things here that kids are expected to bring. A lot of things. Like 10 folders with brads and pockets, two each, red, yellow, blue, green, orange. That's like very really specific, yeah. It's like that's crazy. And that's second grade. So I could see how this could be a bit overwhelming if you were a family that didn't have a lot of extra income. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And you had four children. This could be really overwhelming, which is another good reason for people whose children are grown or who do have extra money to go out, buy these things and donate them. It's important. It makes a difference to kids who are going into school to have their own backpack filled with their stuff versus really not being prepared because it's going to stand out. I think parents also use summertime to be the time when they buy kids their clothes that they kind of aren't fitting into last year's anymore. So they have to relook at Buying shoes and right. pants and so you're shirts. already investing. So in you're that. investing in a yeah. lot of ways. School, yeah. So any school supplies that kind of offset the cost would be helpful. Yep. I hope everybody goes out, buys a bunch of fun school supplies, and donates them in their area. Yep. But you know what was not fun <laughs> <laughs> for anybody? <laughs> the deadliest autumn in American history. Now we so, have we have a cat named Autumn. So yep. I just want to clarify. So it is the deadliest kitty cat <laughs> in American history. Named Autumn. Named Autumn in American history. And I want to specify that this is the deadliest Autumn in American history and not world history. Because there have been a number of very deadly wars and plagues and other natural disasters across the world. Which I'm sure are more deadly than this particular Autumn in American history. But I'm talking about... The breakout of the Spanish flu in 1918 Mm. in the United States. And I'm talking about the lead up to October, but October is sort of the peak of the disease in the United States. There are a number of articles that you can check out about this. One of the better ones is from history.com, which I'm looking at right now for notes. So, what was going on in early 1918? Uh, I think a war. Yeah, a big one. Most of the years, there are wars, so that was a pretty safe bet. Right. <laughs> right. Most years between, like, even after World War One, we were still fighting in wars. Yeah. Right. But what you had with the war was a lot of 
guys packed into these training camps in questionable hygienic situations. It was early in March, I believe, that the symptoms first started showing up, and they started showing up as flu-like symptoms. But what was different about it was, was how quickly it spread throughout the, throughout the camps. Like over the course of a couple of hours, one guy would complain, and then, you know, six hours later, you'd have 110, 120 guys complaining of the same symptoms. Wow. So the first recorded case was at a U.S. Army training camp in Kansas. So this was not overseas. This was actually on U.S. soil, which is one of the reasons that it was so deadly to the Americans. And over the course of this month, more people died than any, any battle, any disease throughout American history. So a lot of these trainees, when they were sent over to Europe, took the disease with them. It proved to be, as it says here, more deadly than any German machine gun. So eventually it died out over the summer until cases began to spring up in Boston and flu quickly spread to nearby military installations again before finally it started to hit the civilian population across the country. And this is a time when uh, there's a lot more mobility in the country than previous decades, previous centuries, because if you think about it, you know, 1918, people are able to move around the country a lot, particularly since there's a war going on. You have a lot of military personnel being moved around to different locations. So a lot of people thought that it was German U-boats that had sailed across the Atlantic and were releasing deadly poisons in American ports. Oh, so that was like part of the... um news reports or things like that. Right, like, right. And some people, uh, like there were a lot of preachers that said it was from sin, like this was a mm. biblical plague, because people just really didn't understand where this was coming from. Because right. it was, at this point, spreading like wildfire through cities. And I imagine for a lot of flus, children and elderly, very the most susceptible. The vulnerable. Right. Yeah. Right. And most likely to, to die. Right, exactly. Right, if you think about influenza... It's not deadly to us now, right. but it, it can spread very quickly right. and very easily. Uh, eventually, the U.S. Navy Bureau of Sanitation said that it was bacteria that caused the illness. So the recommended course of action that the Navy Bureau of Sanitation suggested was to get some fresh air and sunshine, and that should kill the germs in a few minutes. Wow! <laughs> that would have been awesome! Right. Presumably... Nobody had tried that. <laughs> right. 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 Everybody stayed indoors. Everybody stayed indoors. No fresh air. No Stay fresh air. air. No sunshine. So in some cases, they were more concerned with the spread of panic than the flu itself. So a lot of public health authorities downplayed the severity of this plague. So what they would say is that there's no cause for alarm, that it's not severe precautions are you know in place and are being observed so it could have been made worse by people being less aware of it or thinking that it was not as bad as it actually was so not taking extra precautions to take care of themselves and a lot of newspapers didn't want to get on the bad side of the government during wartime and sort of keep people from being able to work something that they thought was detrimental to the war effort 
So again, they didn't report on it as bad as it actually was, which is very interesting to think of now. I wonder what they were worried that the people would do by panicking. Because, you know, today's world, we have actual alert levels for pandemics. Like, they they want you to be aware. Right. To kind of control your environment, to be aware of those around you, to make sure you're cleaning yourself and your hands really well. Yeah, they care more about your health than yeah. your own personal, like... Yeah. Emotion. Like, I don't know. Like, I don't know. Stampede? Maybe they're really <laughs> Just people with stampedes. Running around? I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, if you think about it, um, Fear, maybe. working conditions were very bad during that period. Mm-hmm. So maybe they were afraid. I imagine they were afraid of um, people not working, people not, you know, contributing to the war effort in that way. So people not going into factories. So it was suppressed in the United States, France, and Great Britain, all of whom were uh, were allied powers during the First World War. I find it interesting that all three of them didn't want the spread of panic about this disease outbreak. But that was not the case with Spain, who was neutral during the First World War. The flu outbreak in Madrid eventually led to the pandemic being called the Spanish Flu. That's interesting. Even though it didn't originate in Spain. But just because they were more open about it. That's where people heard about the severity of the flu. So a lot of life in America came to a standstill in October of 1918. Schools, public buildings, public offices and services, a lot of them were shut down because the flu had hit a peak in just how much it was spreading and just how severe it was. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention was still decades away from being established, so there was not an easy bureau for them to sort of go to to take care of this kind of pandemic. There's a lot of pictures. People would wear masks over their face. There's actually cities would impose laws and heavy fines on people who would not wear masks over their faces public officials in particular. Things like court sessions were held outside in public squares rather than inside enclosed buildings where you'd have less air circulation and... Right, so they were going with the fresh air and sunshine. The, right, the <laughs> flesh... take care of it, so let's do everything outdoors. Yeah, and yeah. this is before the Lysol spray was invented too, so you couldn't just go through and Lysol the whole place. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and you could actually, for not wearing a mask, you could be sent to jail as well as fined, which yeah. would pretty much be a death sentence for you because yeah, that's right. getting shoved in diseased yeah. you, getting shoved in jail with diseased other people. Yeah, and no sunshine or circulation. <laughs> fresh <Right>. air. <laughs> no sunshine and fresh air. There was a lot of people arguing that children would be safer surrounded by school nurses than at home. In Philadelphia, the public health director ignored doctors who told him not to stage a parade that was meant to promote government war bonds, which was attended by about 200,000 people. And it says that three days later, every bed in the city's hospital was filled. Philadelphia was almost on the verge of total collapse as a functioning city. That's amazing how fast that might take the... uh, the crown also for the worst parade in American history. <laughs> That's right. 
<laughs> worst uh, what governor in American history, like worst health commissioner in yeah. American history. So over eleven thousand Philadelphia residents died in October nineteen eighteen, uh, including seven hundred and fifty nine on the worst day of the outbreak. Doctors, nurses, health commissioners, everybody was by at this point on top of this. There was no real there was no real hiding it when you hit autumn yeah. of nineteen eighteen. Sounded like at some point it just got to be too big to try to say it's right. not a at problem. the point when you're fining people for not wearing masks, mm-hmm. it's kinda hard to to hide how bad it is. In October, if you think about it, that's one month before the war ends in Europe. So at this point it's a little more clear that the Allies are going to win. So the the fear of Getting of, of panic working. getting in the way of war efforts right. is a right. little diminished. They can focus a little more on, okay, we have this horrible plague all over the U.S., so we should probably finally take care of them. Find ways to alleviate that particular problem. Right. And it's interesting because the Spanish flu disappeared as quickly as it showed up. It took the lives of 195,000 people in October of 1918. Wow, in one month. That's in something. one month. Wow. It's crazy. So that's, I believe, the most we've lost in one month. Because I don't think even in war we've lost 195,000 people over the course of one month. Yeah, in a single month. Wow. So it had a brief resurgence when crowds all flooded cities to celebrate the armistice in November. So whoever still had it, so whoever still it, had it, it around was a all bit. celebrating. <laughs> oh great! Um, so that yeah, that was a nice way to celebrate <laughs> the war. You go out to you know welcome the soldiers home. You go home with the Spanish flu. Right. Boy, you have a bad cough. Oh, it's nothing. Right between war and sickness. Statistically, life expectancy fell from 51 to 39 years of age in 1918, from from the previous year. That is crazy. For the most part, the Spanish flu finally vanished in 1920, and by that time it had killed 675,000 Americans. Just Americans? Americans. Wow. It had left hundreds of thousands of children, orphaned, parents without children. More Americans died of the Spanish flu than fighting in the First World War. Wow, that's amazing. And it's interesting that we know so little about it. Like, if you would say, what cause of the deadliest autumn, I would never have thought, you know what? The Spanish flu was pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because you recognize the name, the Spanish flu. Right. But you don't realize that globally... This pandemic infected a third of the planet's population and killed an estimated 50 million people. So what I just found online, yeah, so little is known about how the Spanish flu pops up Mm -hmm. and then how it goes away. There are some theories, though. In fact, one group of researchers recovered the virus from bodies of frozen victims and transferred it to animals, causing a rapidly progressive respiratory failure and death through overreaction of the body's immune system. So it's hypothesized that um, strong immune reactions of young adults 
would ravage the body, whereas the weaker immune systems of children and middle-aged adults resulted in fewer deaths among these groups. That's interesting. Wow. So your immune system strength actually worked against you. So that would make sense why it spread so quickly in military camps, because these were all young guys who were going to fight in the First World War. Yeah. And it's interesting because History.com, it's funny that you mentioned that you don't think about it much, because History.com says it fell into the black hole of history... Yeah. That people just don't don't know about it and they don't the think war, about war, it. You know, that was the big Right, it was event. overshadowed. Even though more of our people died from the Spanish flu, yeah. it's overshadowed by the war. Yeah. Hmm. And this is that this particular viral infection was not more aggressive than any previous influenza, but that the special circumstances that surrounded that particular strand, like malnourishment, overcrowded medical camps, hospitals, poor hygiene, or just being in a tight space with a ton of people, promoted the bacterial super infection that killed most of the victims. Yeah, it just it just sounded like it was aggressive and it was not fun and that <laughs> lots of people died from it. <laughs> One other note that History.com actually says is that it was in large part because of the war and the Spanish flu that Americans became sort of very fearful of what was out there in the world. So American isolationism picked up a lot after these two big events. And it's interesting because Spanish flu was not something that we got from overseas, but because it was called the Spanish flu, that sort of led to us thinking, oh, this was a European. So that was the deadliest autumn month in history, deadliest autumn in history, but particularly that October of 1918 was the deadliest in American history. Speaking of plagues, let's go over to (laughs) medieval Europe (laughs) and And the worst plague in history, the bubonic plague. (laughs) No, that's not what I'm going to talk about, Cole. But you are going to talk about something fun and medieval. That's true. As we get into August, getting closer to the fall my mind often begins to think about fall festivals. So I'm not just focused on Disney, unlike some people think I am. Are you sure? Yes, (laughs) I am also focused on fall fun. So one of the fall festivals that I enjoy, and I think we enjoy as a family, is called a Renaissance Fair, capital R, capital F, uh, or a Renaissance Festival, depending on uh, where you're from. Sometimes they're called Ren Fairs or Ren Fests. I think our first one we visited was actually uh, while we were living in Texas. We visited there before we had kids and then um, when we had younger kids. So first, what is a Renaissance Festival? So basically, it's a gateway to another world. So almost all popular Renaissance festivals are based at least loosely on the Elizabethan era, circa late 16th century. That's the height of the English Renaissance when all kinds of discoveries were being made and romance and intrigue often ruled the day. The theme does tend to expand these days through um, the inclusion of other fantasy characters, pirates, and sometimes even characters from different eras. Right, like you see a lot of people dressed up as like fairies. That's right, yeah. Right. If you go to a Renaissance festival, you may find a lot of different types of entertainment, as well as amazing food and drink, and usually all manner of different things to buy. Terrible liberties are often taken with historical fact at these festivals, but no one really cares. After all, where else can you watch a joust while sipping on a yard of ale before heading off to dance around the Maypole, mingle with the likes of Robin Hood, and good Queen Bess? 
So these fairs are often called Renaissance Fairs or RenFests, and they're outdoor weekend gatherings in the United States, and they're also in Canada, and they're open to the public for a fee. They attempt to recreate some sort of historical setting to the amusement of its guests. Some are permanent theme parks, while others are short-term events in a fairground. They have an abundance of costume entertainers, musical and theatrical acts, arts and handicrafts for sale, and festival food. Some offer campgrounds for those who wish to stay more than one day. Many Renaissance fairs are set during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I of England. Some are set earlier during the reign of Henry VIII or even in other countries such as France. And some are set outside the era of the Renaissance to include earlier medieval periods, including the Vikings, or later periods such as the 17th or 18th century to include pirates. Now, it's interesting because when you say Renaissance, I don't usually think of what they pick up from Renaissance fairs. I don't usually think of, like, 15th century England. When you say Renaissance, you usually think of Greece and Italy. Well, I guess when I think of Renaissance festival, I've already, in my head, focused in on Europe and France. On right. Europe and France. Right. On Europe and France, right. But that's... That's because of the popularity of Renaissance festivals that right. we think of that. That's right. Because the the Renaissance itself is much more of a Italian resurgence of right. of old right. Roman and Greek architecture, art, you know, the the great artists well, with me. And thus the difference between historical fact and the fun festival with fairies and pirates. Right. right. Which as he said, no one really cares. That they're not right. historically <laughs> accurate. Like it's, it's, it's a fun like, day. I am literally a historian, and I really don't care that because right. their Renaissance festivals just live in their own kind of they little do. world. Yeah. Like they don't try to be historically accurate. You have things that have ye old, you know, <laughs> yeah. coffee bar or something yeah. like that. Yeah. A lot of times it's as simple as a shop like with an E added to the end of it. Like right. how Renaissance fairs will have fair with an E on the end. Yep. The old apple dumplings. Right. <laughs> Which are quite so, good. <laughs> and that actually leads me to the history of where the Renaissance festivals come from. Oh. So Renaissance. That, so in, um, no, they didn't actually, <laughs> surprisingly enough. They came around um, in 1963. So there was a Los Angeles school teacher whose name was Phyllis Patterson, who was unimpressed with the lack of arts education that was provided to her students. So she and her husband decided to start providing after-school art and theater workshops in their backyard. The workshops were so popular that on May 11th and 12th, the Pattersons expanded them into a weekend fundraiser called the Renaissance Pleasure Fair and May Market for a local radio station. The station actually broadcast from the event. It was a six-hour broadcast, and you can actually find uh, information about it, both audio and photos online. The Renaissance Pleasure Fair and May Market became an annual event, and by 1967, there were two fairs in California each year, a Northern Fair and a Southern Fair. Both were organized by Patterson's Education-Focused Nonprofit Living History Center. That's quite a name. <laughs> no. So these fairs date back to the 1960s and then kind of expanded out across the nation. Now you can actually find fairs in most of the states across the country and in several places in Canada. So what should you expect in a Renaissance fair? 
So they all have their differences, but they also have similarities. So first time visitors to any major Renaissance festival should expect lots of stalls and shops selling all kinds of Renaissance themed apparel. They should expect great deal of food and drink options, including lots of beer and wine, themed comedy skits, and many different kinds of performance artists, shortened or adapted versions of Shakespearean plays, Celtic and medieval musicians and dancers, jousting, archery, swordplay, falconry, wandering actors and actresses portraying historical figures from the Tudor era, some of these festivals are absolutely huge. I looked at a site online where you could find out general information about the Renaissance festivals. Some are as small as 5 to 10 acres. Most are in the 30 to 60 acre range. Some are as large as 120 acres. Wow. That is crazy. That's yeah. crazy. Especially because the, the pineapple maze was only 2 acres. <laughs> <laughs> it was gypped. <laughs> they often have multiple food areas. So like they'll have like a whole region of food with a bunch of different stalls, like two to ten of these kind of areas to find food. And uh, same with the stages. They'd have like five to 20 places that people could watch different shows. So it's good to look ahead of time as to what you might want to do and what you might want to eat. And it's interesting because it is a, it is a big blend of sort of Renaissance and medieval it absolutely is. Because they'll take, like you said, they'll take pirates or they'll take jousting or right. something that you would see in 12th century and maybe something you'd see in 16th century. Yes, absolutely. So I was thinking, so why do we enjoy it, Beth? What do you, what do you recall, kids, if you remember the Renaissance festivals, what did you enjoy about them? Well, it was a day of just being out of the norm. So when you went there, you didn't have to worry about any of the normal things of life. You just enjoyed being somewhere very different. You could find plenty of food. You could find plenty of entertainment. One of the things that I keep thinking about is the glass blowers. Do you remember those? Mm-hmm. I loved to just stand and watch them. It was, so, it was so cool. So you got to also see different people do some unusual kind of artistry. Skills, yeah. Different skills. And then there were interesting shops to purchase things in. Yeah, and and I may not have said it or clearly enough, but generally there's a lot of people dressed up, both that are part of the Renaissance Festival and then just the general public that comes in, they come dressed up, right? Yes. So they come in costume, so they really add to the, the vibrancy and the atmosphere of the day. And I think a lot of it is atmosphere. Yeah, I think you're right. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, at least one or two that we've gone to if you come in costume, you get a discount. Yes, you do. That's right. And I actually thought when I asked you what you enjoy about the Renaissance festivals, that your answer would be much simpler. Apple, Apple dumplings. Because <laughs> <laughs> that is usually the first thing that you ask about is where are the apple dumplings? That is the thing I need to have before I leave the fair. <laughs> That's right. Right. And it usually is accompanied by really good vanilla ice cream. Yeah, that's right. And for me, I enjoy, you know, a lot of times I'll have meat on sticks, <laughs> you know, like skewers. Um, yes. I used to like turkey legs. I'm not as into them anymore. But funnel cake, renaissance beer, renaissance in quotes, beer, <laughs> uh, was always fun. So a lot of different food options. Well, you could say renaissance in quotes, funnel cake, too. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> <laughs> could. Or apple dumpling. <laughs> Or yeah. vanilla or ice tur- cream. Or turkey legs. Mm-hmm. 
And usually at the Renaissance festivals we've been to, the jousting was like the main event. Yeah. yeah. Where there would be a royal procession where the royal family comes in and sits down to watch the jousting event. And then the jousting happens. and that's, The knights go and pick their lady. Yes, that's right. The, the knights like pick this. And there's thing. a side. There's the... Like the yes. blue knight side and the red knight side. Yes. And there's always like a bad guy. Yes, there's always a bad guy yes, involved. Yes. But you also, so one of the things some of them do is they will have someone on each side. Like if you are the... A hype man on yes, each side. If yeah. you're like the red joust man, anytime something happens, they'll red, let you know when to scream and the red when knight. to... Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, the red, red joust, joust man. man. <laughs> it's just a red knight. <laughs> Red night, the blue night, whatever. Yeah, whatever. But like, ultimately, what happens is like they almost like some. At least the one that I remember, they split the audience in half. Half would cheer for the night, the red night, <laughs> and half would cheer for the blue. I remember being on the side of the red bad night, and uh, our side was the best at cheering. Yeah, you so, were cheering for the bad guy. We all were. We were all on that side. Yeah. We didn't like separate our family. <laughs> but a lot of the jousting is sort of them tapping their lances together. Like yes. it's, yeah. it's a lot less Game of Thrones than I want it to be. Yes. <laughs> Although yeah. they usually are de-horsed at some point and then they battle with their broadswords, which is also yeah. choreographed, yeah. obviously, so there are no heads lopped off. No, no right. blood, no blood. It's more like jousting of words than jousting of weapons. weapons. Yeah. Why would you say that? Because I remember them being really funny. No, they were very funny. Yeah, they I was just thinking, don't want to like. I mean, they actually are jousting. They yeah, are. No, right. they are. But but there's like a lot Cole of said, like um, Game of Thrones. What's that called when you kind of um, like when football players talk trash? Yeah, it's talking trash. That's yeah, what I'm saying. Exactly. Yeah, there's a lot of trash talking going on. Yes. Yeah. Which is hilarious. Which is so fun. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And there, but there's sometimes a gesture that's involved and in, in the middle of all. Of yeah. It, a lot of it is medieval kind of trash talking. Yes. <laughs> You could call it besmirch yes. talking, <laughs> something like that. That's right. Yeah, That's right. Um, but it's interesting. I've not been to a Renaissance festival as an adult, so all I remember was going to them as a kid, um, and a lot of it was just looking at things was the fun thing as a kid. Yeah, the whole environment. The whole environment yeah. is yeah. so different. Yeah, um, I actually remember going to two festivals, sort of like that one was the renaissance festival and one is the scottish highland festival yep but both of those were very cool and both of them were a lot of environment and watching games and that's another thing about the renaissance festival they'll have what you would think of as sort of your arcade kind of games but they'll put a medieval spin on it right like basketball or something like that like the little basketballs but it'll be something else like Right. Like fake chickens or something <laughs> right. like that you're, you're trying to throw in the hoop. And they'll have like archery and yes. spear throwing and yes. axe throwing and other cool things like that. Is that mainly for kids, do you think? Which part? Like the different games. Is that mainly a kid thing? Or I think no? there's a lot of kid and adult things. Yeah, no, I think it's like a carnival where like if you want to win something for your girlfriend or your you know, wife or whatever, you can do that too. One of the things that I always think about and laugh about is one of the Renaissance festivals that we went to when the children were very little. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Sydney must have been about three. So Cole would have just been tiny. We went to a Renaissance fair, and we actually had the kids in a wagon. 
And we were pulling them around so their tiny little legs didn't get too tired. And Sydney had this mop of curly, dark hair and big brown eyes. And she just would attract people over that wanted to talk to her. Except she didn't want to talk to anybody. (laughs) They scared her. And so many people, so many of the women dressed up in costume would come over and then kneel down and then try to talk to her and then call her princess and, you know, and all this stuff. And she would just cry. (laughs) (laughs) Wasn't having any of it. (laughs) It was so funny. After a while, it's like, no, really, she's she's not going to like it. But it was really sweet of everybody to, you know, try. Yeah. Yes, there are a lot of different artisans there that Beth talked about different stalls where you could like buy things. They have chain mail uh, that you can wear. They have blacksmiths working there, glass blowers, leather workers. People are making um, Renaissance era musical instruments that you can buy, different weapons, woodcrafters, pewter smiths, um, and then people making children's toys and children's clothing. So it really is a family event. But there are definitely sections that aren't as family friendly. Yeah, um, I remember some. Of yeah, some of the uh, shows aren't. <laughs> some as of the friendly. shows are a little raunchy. Yeah, yeah. The, the jousting is definitely an open event, and a lot of the displays of like archery and hatchet mm-hmm. throwing, yeah, those sorts of things. But some of the storytellers and some of the comedian events you can actually read online. It'll give you a little bit of a heads up. All of the Renaissance festivals that I saw listed had their own website where you can look up the entertainment. And kind of a little bit about not just the general information about when they're open and tickets, but also about the the different shows and characters from the show. So a lot of information online. And there is a fee to get in. Yeah, there's a fee to get in. Right. To me, they're always a very fun, interesting place of kind of like getting away, escaping reality for a weekend kind of thing. My brother Dave goes to several of these and has gone to several um, recently across the country and he talks about the story. He really likes the storytellers. I know that's something that we really enjoy too is the storytellers. But just some practical tips for any of these kinds of days is one, dress for comfort. So there's a lot of people wearing clothes from the period and you can choose to do that. Just know that if you wear those kind of heavy clothes and it's hot out, you're going to be sweating like crazy. So just think ahead of time about what you're wearing. Footwear is important. As I mentioned, these places are pretty big. And some of the places have slopes, like hills and things you got to walk up and down. So just be ready for that. Well, and if it rains, there's going to be quite a bit of mud. Yes, because it it definitely is in a wooded area or graveled area. This is not the Roman times. No, (laughs) that's right. Stay hydrated. uh, Wear sunscreen. Take a hat. Take cash with you. Um... They've gotten better about being able to handle credit card and debit cards, but they have. for food and things like that, it may be worth taking some cash. Stop and watch, right? So that's a big thing is that this is really not about going and doing. It's about watching. I know. That's a surprise for me. Uh, <laughs> I'm, Why do you I'm like the doer it? of the family. <laughs> but, but definitely it's interesting because even the people just walking around amongst the customers basically are interesting and and are doing interesting things. They might be a magician, that might be a musician, juggler, uh, juggler. Yes, yeah, so people just, on stilts. Yeah, they're just it's, it's very interesting. I remember and then, a, a fire breather. Yeah, the fire breathers. Yeah, mm-hmm. fire jugglers. Fire juggler. Yeah. Fire juggling fire breathers. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. And then um, the last one is just be prepared to participate because definitely. 
uh, in a lot of the shows and people walking around. They want the interaction. They're looking for the interactions. If you're not as much into that, just know that ahead of time and maybe uh, get yourself prepared to have that kind of interactive fun that day. Or keep your eyes down, make eye contact with no one. <laughs> Cry when anyone approaches you. <laughs> hey, you bring a small child that cries. Yeah, blame, it, blame it on her. That's right. So Renaissance festivals are very fun. Very yes. fun for everyone. Well, now you're making me want to go to a Renaissance festival. I know, and there's one, like, literally five minutes from Dad's house. One of the uh, two mm-hmm. Pennsylvania Renaissance Festival is like five Is that the one that we went to? Because yes. I remember going to one earlier in the It's Pittsburgh. a smaller one. I think it's 10 acres. So it's on the smaller side, but it's still growing. I know they're growing each year. So as always, we finish our podcast off with the future festivities. This for the week of August 13th. August 13th is Left Handers Day. August 14th is National Creamsicle Day. August 15th is Feast of the Assumption Day. August 16th is National Tell a Joke Day. August 17th, National Honey Bee Awareness Day. August 18th, Bad Poetry Day. August 19th, World Photo Day. And August 20th, World Mosquito Day. Why would you give a day to mosquitoes? mosquitoes. We should not be even saying that. They're the thing that kills people, the most people, every year. That's right. Mosquitoes. Mosquitoes. Mosquito-borne illnesses. Make sure we're bug spray. So for Sydney, Beth. Cole. And Randy, happy August.